Employee frustration can be difficult to diagnose. Common symptoms may include keyboard thrashing, oh. aggressive hair pulling, anxious sobbing, <laughs> and the royal I quit. If you detect one or more of these, your team may be infected with the highly contagious software frustritis. Don't panic. WalkMe's contextual guidance simplifies any software, providing an intuitive and hassle-free user experience. Everybody wins. Gets more done. Join thousands of leading enterprises that simplify their workflow with WalkMe. WalkMe. Get started now. Introducing the new era of digital identity with SoCure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why SoCure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. SoCure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, SoCure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with SoCure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit SoCure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Ultimately, you're held accountable. You, you can't delegate that accountability, but you can give other people the responsibility and authority to get things done. And this is really what I carried with me throughout my career, because you tell people, here's what you can do. Here's the vision. Here's the direction we're going. Here's what we're going to do. And you just give them the responsibility and the authority to just run with it, right? Now I'm going to hold them accountable. Ultimately, I'm accountable for a thing, but you give them the ability to run and that's that really translated to my civilian career. Welcome back to the Government Huddle podcast guys. I'm your host Brian Chittister. I'm really excited to welcome my guest today because she's someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while now and once you hear our conversation you're going to know exactly why. I'm talking about Maria Rote and her background is really impressive. Maria is a former U.S. Deputy Federal CIO and also CIO for the Small Business Administration. And she has 10 years of experience in technology positions with the Department of Homeland Security, as well as a 25-year career in the U.S. Navy, achieving the rank of Master Chief. And we're going to cover a lot of things on this episode, starting with her military career, lessons she learned, and what she brought into her civilian career that she feels has really helped her. We're also going to cover a topic that I know is near and dear to most people's hearts, FedRAMP, 
because as many as you may know, she was the first director of the program. I'm going to get her thoughts on the evolution of FedRAMP and what she feels may need changing to make it more successful. And I'm also really curious to get her thoughts on the collaboration that's needed at the agency level between CIOs and CTOs, because she's held both roles really successfully. Like I said, we're going to cover a lot today. So let's just jump into it. Maria, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Brian. Thank you for having me on on the program. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. And one of the main reasons is your background is so diverse. You have been to numerous different agencies. Um, You bring such a wealth of information everywhere you go. But the one thing that in looking across your background, there is just a pattern of service. And I don't know, maybe not everybody knows this about you, but you started your career in the Navy. And I'm curious to know what instilled service being so important to you? You know, like, like many people who join the military, right? You, you join it for some, some reason. Mine was, um, uh, joining because of training, right? When I was looking at colleges in the late seventies, there really wasn't anybody teaching computers. And I joined the military for the training and you ask about service. And, and I think, you know, being in the, in the military, uh, you know, you, you learn service, you learn about the mission, you learn about why you're serving, right? So that starts to be instilled in you. And then, you know, couple that with, you know, my parents, they volunteered at the church, especially my dad doing many things. So I was always around that uh, spirit of volunteerism, if you will. But coming out of the military off active duty and then working in public service, I think it just continued in with, you know, uh, understanding the mission, right? Why are we here? We are serving the public. We're doing a thing. One of my first jobs out of the military, um, you know, I was working on payroll and we had to get payroll out for all of the military in the Tidewater area. I was actually printing checks. So this is going back to the early 80s. Why, why, that was the service. That was the mission. I had to make sure that every two weeks, those checks were going out to the service members and to the civilian employees. So, and, and I think that just continued on with my career when you look at all the roles and what drives me is serving the public, right? I'm serving the nation, serving the public. I don't want it to sound pithy, but that's really what it is. No, it doesn't sound pithy at all because I will tell you that's almost almost 100% of every uh, government person that I've brought onto this show has said that, that service is a big part of why they do what they do. So I'm not surprised to hear that's exactly what has, uh, what kind of brought you into not only obviously the military you were looking for training, but also into, uh, in your civilian career into serve. I'm curious, I mean, beyond the idea of mission, because I think that is very consistent. What other types of dynamics did you bring from the military into your civilian career? Um, outside of the, you know, coming in, you know, from the military and, and being in my civilian career, if you look at my career, right, I got off active duty and I stayed in the reserves. And then I started my federal service when I got off active duty. And, and you know, within the military, you, you are um, given tons of responsibilities, right? Even if you're just getting out of boot camp, you're getting responsibilities. You're in charge of a team that's going to be running field day, right? Swabbing that you're, you're, you're in charge of a team that's doing something. And, and so you're getting a lot of leadership from the military. You also get 
a lot of structure, right? A lot of structure on that. And couple that with being an IT person, a math person, right? I'm very much a list person. <laughs> I work with lists. Um, and, and so when you, when you take a lot of those things from the military, the training, the leadership, being in leadership role, that translates to a civilian career where you don't always get a lot of that training as you progress through your grade structure, right? From GS, you know, nine to 11 to 12 to, you know, moving up to 15 and SES, you don't get a lot of that. So those dynamics around leadership and taking care of people, which is ingrained in you in the military, that translates right into your civilian career. You're always taking care of people, right? This is what you're there for. You've got the mission, you've got all of those things, but you're there, your folks that work for you, they are there for a job and you are there to take care of them. And I think many of those things just translated right over from the military, right into um, public service, into my civilian career. And in that kind of and the only word that kind of comes to mind is like that decentralization of responsibility is that something that you were very intentional about when you were in leadership roles uh within your federal civilian career yeah you know you have you know the military you know you have responsibility you have authority and you and you have accountability and you learn to delegate right so you delegate that and and all of those things translate, right? Ultimately, you're held accountable. You, you can't delegate that accountability, but you can give other people the responsibility and authority to get things done. And this is really what I carried with me throughout my career, because you tell people, here's what you can do. Here's the vision. Here's the direction we're going. Here's what we're going to do. And you just give them the responsibility and the authority to just run with it right? Now I'm going to hold them accountable. Ultimately, I'm accountable for a thing, but you give them the ability to run. And that's, that really translated to my civilian career. Um, And I think that's really important because you don't want to be a micromanager, right? Um, You want to be part of that leadership team. You want to be that to give your folks the opportunity to grow and take things on and be innovative and just go. No, I, I totally agree with you. One of the one of the challenges that I had across my career as I've as I advanced and started running teams was getting further away from the things that I like doing. But also, I, I mean, self admittedly, I'm a, a little bit of a control freak, so I like to like you have that standard and you want to make sure you're you're hitting those standards. And it was it was difficult for me sometimes to give things up, right? But what I what I learned was that. Once I, once I gave myself that freedom of giving things up, I was able to scale out my influence far greater because there are so many things going on and you, you really, as a team, accomplish less if you're trying to do individually more. If you, yeah. if you try to give everybody else roles and responsibilities, exactly what you said, you can accomplish far more as a team. But was there something that helped you get to that point to being able to, cause I don't, I don't know how you are, but I, I like being able to be in charge of like making sure things get done, those tasks get done and like getting into the weeds sometimes. And I've gotten better at it now, but it was a challenge. Yeah. You know, uh, being very technical throughout, you know, much of my career, a lot of hands-on, um, as you, 
as you move into, and this is, and I keep coming back to this, right? In the military, as you get promoted at some point, right? When you make chief in the Navy, you, you're, you're the technical expert, but you are not the person doing the job and always doing the hands-on all the time, right? You're in a position of where you have many, many people working for you and you just exactly what you said, you can't do everything and you have to learn to trust your team and let them do the work. And, and regardless of where you work in the federal government, private industry, anywhere that, that translates, right? You can't, you can't be the person who does everything and you can't be that, what did you call it? The control freak? Control freak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you just can't do that. And, and you have to let people learn and make mistakes and let them go because that's how we both learned, right? Um, you learn as you go, you make mistakes, and then you fix them and, and you move on. And you have to give your the, the people who work for you that those same opportunities to make those same mistakes yeah. or different mistakes. <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely right. And I mean, one of the things that's reinforced that is has been at least my kids. I mean, being able to allow them sometimes to make mistakes in like a controlled environment and help them learn from those things. It's, it's challenging. And even, even as a team leader, right, you, you want your team to, to learn from those things. I had a, I had a, a, a boss one time when we were going through the, and this, this is actually a good segue into your federal civilian career. One of the things that she talked about, cause we were going through the FedRAMP process, which everyone listening knows is really, really easy. And, um, <laughs> She said, unless you unless you've gone through it a couple of times and you have those bumps and bruises and scars to to kind of learn from it, you never really know exactly what you're doing. Right. So it's right. kind of the same type of thing. You go through these processes and, and they're not easy for for various reasons. But until you go through it and you you know it because of that and you have that experience, you really don't really learn kind of yeah. everything that you possibly could from a situation. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you that, you know, being technically deep, right, in networking operations, you know, all of that through my career, it served me well as a CTO and a CIO, because I could dive in. And while I wasn't doing the hands-on work, I knew what questions to ask. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so having that technical breadth and depth, it just positioned me to, to, you know, I, and I, how do I put this nicely? Right. Um, you know, the BS flag, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I use that exact um, phrase. Like I have that red, red flag, that BS flag in the back that kind of goes up as soon as you know, something's off. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, there's been a couple of times in my career where that BS flag's gone off and I had a one-way conversation with the team. Right. Yeah. And then I said, fix it. And then left. <laughs> <I've done that. laughs> so uh, you mentioned your transition into uh, federal civilian and one of the roles that, that you were in was at the Department of Homeland Security, and you were there actually just a couple years, I want to say two or three years after 9-11, and, and obviously DHS was kind of stood up after 9-11. What was it like being in that, in that environment where, I mean, you talked about mission, right? I can't imagine working within an organization, that, at least outside of the military, that didn't feel a mission as much as Department of Homeland Security when it came to like responding and protecting post 9-11. What was that? What was that environment like? Yeah, I came to DHS in uh, July of um, 2004. Um, so a couple of years after 9-11, like you said, and I uh, got a job working at TSA on what was called then the Secure Flight Program. 
if anybody remembers CAP2, CAPS2 was killed. And Secure Flight was the new program that had to check the identity of everybody who who flew in the in the United States, right? You have to verify you are who you say you are. So after all the, um, uh, I'll just call it fiasco of CAPS2 because of collecting too much information in the privacy and all the implications of that, we had to, I came on board at the beginning when we were revisiting, how do you validate identities of the flying public? How do you match that up against a terrorist watch list? How do you know, Brian, that you are who you say you are? And what are those minimum data elements that, that the airlines need, that the government needs to check that say who you say, you know, that you are who you say you are. What do you need? What pieces of information? And it was really fascinating. Um, You know, I was the deputy director on the secure flight program, and it was just fascinating to work on that program, knowing that, you know, part of the mission is, you know, you don't want a, a bad person getting on the plane, you know, a terrorist or anything like that, because it was still incredibly heightened, right? heightened alerts, checking everybody, you know, intense screening, going through the airports, that entire environment. But part of this was, was validating you are who you say you are um, and, and working on those projects and developing the system that does the vetting for every single person in the United States that flies. Um, so that was, that was really incredible to be able to work on that program and get that stood up. It was just uh, uh, it, one of those things you never thought you'd work on. Yeah, and I, I'm curious to know uh, back in back in that time period. One of the things that I think um, to fast forward a little bit, um, your role as as CIO at Small Business Administration. One of the things things that I think SBA has done really well, as well as some of the uh, some of the other agencies have done this too, is they've incorporated human centered design throughout this process to very intentionally try to understand the process from all angles. When you were working on that secure flight program, did you guys incorporate any of that methodology into what you were trying to do? Um, not so much because, you know, really when you think about what CX and UX looks like today, it was very different in 2004. You didn't, you didn't really call it that. But we also knew that when collecting information, we had to figure out what are the minimum data elements that were needed, right? I actually ran that project. It was in the appropriations language. I actually ran that project and worked with all these mathematicians and others, you know, Bayesian math. I learned more about all of that. I I just (laughs) love being in that environment, by the way. (laughs) Um, But, you know, name and date of birth are the minimum two data elements, right? And you could could actually prove that mathematically, um, that those are the minimum two that you need to fly. Um, And of course, people give their address and everything now. but, but the customer experience part of it was really driven by privacy to say, what are the minimum things that, that the government needs to vet against a watch list for somebody to fly? So it wasn't so much about, you know, thinking overtly, if you will, about customer experience, but we also had to think through what are the minimum things people need to provide. That's that's interesting, especially now we're, we're having that conversation around like mobile driver's license and um, the right. ability, the ability to kind of toggle on and off the type of data you're, you're willing to give and not give and, and being able to be in, co- in control of your privacy is kind of cool. Obviously that level of technology wasn't around back in the early two thousands to be able to facilitate that. 
and and it was pretty fascinating because I learned early on, you know, working on that project, it, you know, it's kind of scary. I knew back in 2004 what it took to fabricate an identity, which was kind of scary. Yeah. Um, but that was part of the learning process of if somebody wanted to fly and they had to fabricate an identity, how would they do it? Um, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. But privacy, you mentioned privacy. That's That was a huge factor then. And as it is now... And it, and, and it put that for me personally front and center about, you know, what information do I share publicly or do I not? And, you know, certainly harping on my kids about don't give away those things, you know? Mm -hmm. So I personally had a lot that I learned out of that program that, that I carried forward with me throughout the government and in my personal life about why do we need to collect this? Why are we doing this? And understanding how data can be brought together to, um, you know, uh, uh, to build, you know, information. It's in some ways it's good. In some ways you don't want it to be used for nefarious purposes. <laughs> sure. And so, I mean, you were, you were part of that building that foundationally and another program you were really part of in the early days, helping build that foundation is, uh, the FedRAMP program. Um, and you were director of it in its, in its early years, kind of the early 2010s. How have you seen that program change and like as you were working on it early early days i'm sure you had a vision hopefully for where it was going to move to have you seen it evolve in the direction that that you would have hoped yeah you know um when i was hired i was the first fed ramp director um you know the the policy was there you know gsa thou shalt stand up a program you know katie lewin was in depth and part of all that process but i was brought on um, as the first director. And my job was to figure out, you know, it, it was in, think about startups, right? Startup companies, startup projects, right? It was in that IOC phase. And my job, because I, I came from DHS on detail to GSA to stand the program up. And my job was to get it from IOC to FOC, from initial operations to full operations. That was my job. And, you know, I'm a list person, I'm a structure person, and I know how to stand something up. So, so we did that. And, and as I've seen the program evolve, right, it was very labor intensive. We had a lot of people doing work. They were checking the controls, um, you know, working with the cloud providers, you know, as the cloud providers were going, coming online, a lot of people didn't understand um, the architecture and those kind of things. So we had a, a lot of of deep dives on each of the cloud providers and their architecture, right? You know, it, sometimes it was, well, walk, walk me through, how does a packet move through that environment? And we did that in some cases. So we understood, you know, um, uh, where the data would reside and how it would transit the environment. Um, and, and as the programs evolved, you know, and that was a lot of labor. And, and over time, I've seen the program adjust, right? FedRAMP ready. If there's a company who's come in and said, hey, we're ready to go. We've done all these things. We just need a customer, right? So FedRAMP ready and some of the others. I, there's, you know, a lot of opportunities with automation. Um, I saw this over time, especially as a CTO and CIO. And I would think sometimes, hey, you know, we could, I bet the, the cloud service providers getting this data, most of the controls you can automate and start bringing that in. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for, for automation. You still have to check, you still have to verify, you still have to test, you know, for the controls in place. But I still think that there's, you know, still things you can do around automation and some of the continuous monitoring that needs to happen as part of the requirements. 
I see I see FedRAMP evolving with AI, right? With the cloud providers or those service providers, you know, software as a service, right? Are is there as part of the risk management framework? Um, you know, NIST has put out some things. Is there a subset of controls that should be included in FedRAMP if that software as a service has um you know, is it has AI capability in it? Are there some controls that should be involved or is it whatever that software program is? So I know there's a lot of work there that's, mm-hmm. that's underway in consideration. So I think, you know, the program has continued to evolve and, and it, and it has to continue to evolve. It cannot stagnate. One of the things that I actually heard Drew speak about this last week, he was talking about kind of a vision for the evolution there and I thought it was a really good idea was kind of pushing some of the more uh, technical and labor intensive things back onto the PMO and allowing the the program offices for the actual agencies that are, are the authorizing agencies kind of continue on with their mission to have a group that is more of like a, a special operations team just for kind of overcoming those technical aspects or like you saying, facilitating the package. So you're not pulling those those mission program agencies off of what they're trying to do. I thought that was a a, a really good idea for that vision. Yeah, and and what you really want is and you go back to the foundation, right? Of FedRAMP, authorize something once, right? Get everything together, and then let it be used multiple times across the federal government. And I still think that's really important because you don't want to jerk around the cloud providers and. Mm-hmm you know, the software as a service and platform, all the providers out there who've got apps in the cloud, you know, to minimize the work that they have to do. So I think, I think the premise is still valid, right? Authorize once, use many, um, and, and how that's accomplished, you know, and FedRAMP has shown how that continues to evolve. So as I, I want to move into uh, another role within your career, which is um, you were the, the CIO at the Small Business Administration during the during the beginning of the pandemic, and obviously you did a lot of great work there um, prior to that. But um, when the pandemic kicked off, I, I mean, one of the most vital agencies for the federal government during that period of time was small business because of the loans that were going out to help keep these small businesses afloat. Um, so it had to be a challenging situation to be in. What what did that look like um, from the inside from your position? Um, I would tell you those first, uh, you know, couple of months, um, it was, it was crazy. I didn't sleep and I lost 10 pounds cause I wasn't eating. Man, yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> there you go. It, it was busy because Congress came through and they said, poof, here you go. Here's all this money. Um, you know, both, both for the paycheck protection program and for the idle economic injury. And now facilitate um, it. <laughs> right disaster loans, right? So we had we had those going on. We had requests coming in. Um, my team, I'll tell you what, they were amazing, right? And this was a huge opportunity. So to, to go back, right? Um, I'd already been at the SBA a couple of years. We'd, we'd laid down foundational, um, we'd done the foundational work to modernize the agency's infrastructure, right? The network, um, uh, you know, all of those basics, right? So the, all the foundational stuff. We were already building the walls on our house, you know, from the foundation and modernizing, moving to the cloud, doing all of that. So when you look at 
those two and a half, almost three years of all that work that we did, it set us up to be successful around technology when the pandemic hit, because we were able to turn on a dime to spin up the cloud, right? So the president sent out a tweet when we saw that our uh, SBA.gov website, the number of hits, just, it was huge, the spikes. I have the numbers still somewhere. I don't know them off the top of my head. But had we not moved to the cloud and taken advantage of the scalability of the cloud, we would have we would have been killed when the pandemic hit. We were also able to turn up very quickly some applications and some front end apps, um, you know, for the banks as they were coming in using the cloud again. Um, we were able to use, um, you know, and uh, we worked with our partners, both Microsoft and AWS. Um, they were they were incredible helping us. Um, you know, we were able to spin up some apps very quickly, some front-end web-facing face, applications to be able to bring things in as small businesses um, were trying to get loans and the banks were trying to come in. So it was it was actually pretty intense. Um, those first 50 days of the pandemic, um, and I say 50 days because um, it was crazy and we had lots going on, but we accomplished a lot. Um we didn't take, you know, shortcuts when it came to cybersecurity. Um, everything we did, um, that was certainly front and center. Um, but we also worked with the program offices as the technology was being stood up and asking questions about, you know, risk and, you know, appropriate questions. Well, if we do this, here's the risk you take. If we wait one day, you minimize that risk by doing a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we had very... Um, open conversations with the front office and others around the technology, how quickly it could get spun up, you know, how many people were applying, all of that stuff coming in. And we did take advantage of the platforms that we put in place to automate, right? So the calls coming in in the emails. So think about a small business. They send an email or they make a phone call. If they send an email, they didn't get a response right away other than maybe an automated response. What are they going to do the next day? They're going to send another one. So we put the processes in place behind the scenes so that we could deduplicate, right? So even as we were bringing in 5,000 people to help support the loans and the grants process and all the money that was going out, right? So those people and the attorneys and everybody else that were coming in, the loan officers, we were putting processes in place in the front end to automate. So we could not have done that had we not laid all those foundational capabilities and moved to the cloud um, those first couple of years. And I mentioned the first 50 days because after 50 days, um, I, I made the team stop for a minute and breathe. And what we did was we wrote down everything that we accomplished in 50 days. And I, and I thought it was really important because we had done so much. And we had taken a lot of projects that we had further down later in the year or the following year. And we accelerated all those and moved them into those 50 days. It was huge and it was very significant. And we could not have done any of that. I could not have done it. The agency could not have done it without without the federal employees that I had hired who were very innovative and creative and our industry partners who turned on a dime to support us. So it was really crazy. Um, and, and, and I make a point about that 50 days because that's how fast we moved. And then we stopped and I said, I have got to collect this and document it for the record. Right. I, I documented everything we did for those 50 days and it was huge when you sit back and look at it. 
Well, on top of that, you were, I mean, you didn't even mention the fact that you were also trying to transition those workers into a remote posture. So, Oh, you know what? That, that happened seamlessly. Um, Well, I guess that was the foundation that you had laid. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, people flipped over to telework. We'd already put in ZTN, zero trust networking. We had, were moved off our VPN. Um, We'd moved most everybody off our VPNs so that they came in on, on, um, through the VPN that was installed on their laptop to their, you know, local point of con. So they didn't have to backhaul on prem to a VPN and backhaul back out to the cloud. We'd already moved to the cloud, already moved everything to O365. So flipping to telework was much like the rest of the federal government. It was like, okay, we just did it. And, and there weren't many hiccups at all. I, I- you're, the way you described it, it reminds me a lot of, and I don't know if you've gotten a chance to to read it yet, but Jen Palka's book, Recoding America, and she talks about her time at California EDD, where she kind of came in to help them. Very similar process where they were looking to distribute unemployment insurance benefits to the citizens of California. And the, the dichotomy she was challenged with was, how do I get all this money in, into the hands of people, but also... Um, put enough friction that I'm preventing fraud with with this money going out, and I can imagine that had to be a huge challenge. I mean, you mentioned not sleeping. I, I would have to say that was one of the primary reasons why uh, you weren't sleeping. How did you manage uh, such a such a challenging aspect of what you were doing? Yeah, you know, I know it, responsible for the technology piece, but working also with the program offices, right? So you talked about fraud and the like. And there were, you know, a number of factors, you know, it's just like when you get a loan, right? You have to provide all this information and they look at your credit score and all that, you know, and there are things you can tweak, you know, lower a credit score and what's the percentage of people that would pass, right? If you'd lowered a couple of points, five points or something. So the program office and the front office had to make some pretty tough decisions on, on risk and how much risk they would accept for the applications that were coming in. Um, so even as we were providing the technology, there were all those business decisions that were happening at the same time, much like you just talked about for the unemployment insurance, um, and all the applications coming into the States for unemployment, it was huge. So you mentioned before, I mean, you, you sat in a CTO role, um, where you were at department of transportation before you, you made it to SBA. And then you were, you've been in multiple CIO roles, knowing both sides of it. Um, I, I feel like collaboration would be very important, but I'm curious to, to know kind of what does collaboration look like between these positions and kind of how do you guys, how do you guys work together as a, as a big team technology and information team? You, yeah. You know, as the CTO at department of transportation, you know, I felt like I had one foot in the door with all the in-house operations, right. You know, the data centers in the cloud and things like that. But I also had another foot in the door. I worked very closely with all of the mission areas, right? Understanding the mission in detail, you know, from a technical perspective, right? So I got involved in V2V, vehicle to vehicle, V2I, um, understanding connected intersections, right? The technology around that, understanding, you know, when the tractor trailers, uh, the semi trailers, uh, tractor, they go down the road, right? Do they have to stop? to get weighed and inspected or not, right? There was new technology rolling out where if they were good drivers, you know, there were other factors in there, they didn't have to stop at the way stations, 
right? Um, and that type of technology was rolling out. So, and then the inspections that happen with with bridges uh, and other things. So, I got very involved in in the mission as a CTO while I was also working with the CIO on just overall modernizing. So, so as a CTO, do you know you have to work in both those places? And as a CIO, I relied on my CTO to have a technical understanding of what was going on in the mission areas and to be my my on point person for understanding that from a from a technical perspective so i the the collaboration between the two positions is huge because the cto is going to know hey if we try this you know try a we might be able to do something you know downstream and also helping with you know, enterprise architecture, you know, what's the strategy? What's our technical strategy? What is that path working very closely? So you, you, those two, those two positions, you know, along with your, of course, with a deputy, I think the three of them are really, it's that triad. It's really critical to any organization that, that they're in sync because each of those, the CIO and the CTO bring different perspectives to the organization, you know, from a technical and then from a leadership with the CIO, um, that collaboration is, is really, is, is huge. It's a, it is a big deal. We talked earlier in kind of different context about being able to scale out your influence. And one of the things that you did was you moved from CIO of small business administration into the deputy federal CIO role. did you like being able to scale out that impact? I'm guessing that's kind of, I mean, again, being able to touch all these different agencies besides just being at one agency on that program, there has to be kind of differences there, but then being able to make an impact across government would be um, very interesting, I would imagine as well, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting because as, as a CTO, right, I I stood up the CTO council, right? There wasn't a CTO council and the CTO role was relatively new in the federal government. And this is when you were at DOT? Yeah. And there was okay. just a handful of us. We used to get together for lunch um, and get together for coffee occasionally, right? And just talk and about the council. <laughs> right. And that was the CTO council. We would just, <laughs> just get together, right? I said, hey, let's get to this. So, so I actually started that and then it was formalized. And I say that because that was, um, you know, along with FedRAMP, really gave me perspective on what was going on with the federal enterprise, right? So if you think about FedRAMP, I was working with all the agencies as well as industry. And then transitioning into the CTO role, not just working on transportation, but with the CTOs across the federal government. And when I moved into a CIO role, I was the chair of the innovation committee for the CIO council. Um, I was very active with the CIO council, which in turn, you know, gave me perspective of what a more perspective of what was going on across the federal government. So, so working, you know, 10 years at DHS, working at DOT, being on detail on FedRAMP at GSA, working at Department of Navy. So I had a lot of perspective from, from the federal wide, and I understood the impact of if you make a change, how does that trickle down, right? How do you, making, you know, working with OMB to put a memo out, you know, cloud first, cloud smart, all of those things, how that advances technology across the federal government. And I learned, you know, what those levers are that you can tweak to advance across the federal government, right? How to, how to, 
you know, not like a, always a forcing function, but really to take some of those big programs and those big projects and really accelerate those. What are some of those levers that you found? Um, well, okay. So you've got, you know, OMB, right? Of mm-hmm. course, you know, OMB memos. You knew, you knew I was going to ask. Go I had out, to ask. Go out and do a thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not just, we're going to go do a thing. We're going to track it. But the important part of that is it's not OMB. We're going to go do a thing. It's collaborating with everybody to say, and get agreement with it. If it's the CIO council, the CDO council, the CTOs to say, get agreement on, we have to do this thing and and get everybody on board everybody weighs in you get all of the opinions and you get everybody's input on that that is so important to be successful so that when you do come out with a memorandum it's not a surprise to anybody right um you know you talk about collaboration this is something that people have wanted across the federal government and the cios right being able to chat with each other I wanted to do this as a CTO. Why can I get on, not get online and chat with my fellow CTOs at another agency, right? To ask them a quick question. Why do I have to resort to email and a phone call? Um, and this is something I carried with me as a CIO of SBA is government-wide collaboration. And it actually did a couple of pilots with the EPA and NASA, turning it up. And we were working on it so that when I got to be the deputy, I carried that with me and said, we're going to do a thing right? We're going to have government-wide collaboration and we're going to turn it up. And I think that program is still continuing, not as fast as I'd like from what I hear. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I still think having government-wide collaboration is is incredibly important across the federal enterprise. So all of this, you know, scaling out your impact and understanding the federal enterprise, you can pull those levers to to make things happen. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because you've obviously, you've been in government and public service for a long time. And I think we all have opinions on what's made the biggest change, because I think unequivocally, there's been uh, massive change in a number of different areas within how government operates, especially from a technology perspective. But a lot of people like to point to, well, it was this technology or that technology, right? Like the shift to the cloud is what made the biggest change. But I think ultimately, and you just kind of touched on it, people talk all the time about how important culture is to an organization, but I think we underestimate how much kind of collaborative culture across agencies from the top down can really drive these changes. So if, I mean, after hearing what you're saying for me, I would think the creation of some of these councils like the CIO and CTO and CDO councils has been one of the biggest things that's made these changes possible across government. Yeah, and that's how you that's how you move the needle, right? That's how you get something done. You get you get there's a lot of power in the councils, right? Um, you know, even if even when the hill sends legislation down, you know, oh, this is a great idea. We're going to go do a thing and we're going to do a bill and, you know, for something. But having everybody weigh in on it and provide that feedback or if the council says, you know, Congress or the senator, that's really a bad idea. Um, you can you can provide that feedback. So there's a lot of power in in having you know the community of the CIOs and others provide that feedback. You know those two way conversations to really to really drive change um, on that. And 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 I you know and it's not just the culture of collaboration. It's also the people and the roles that have to want to do it as well. That see the vision and see the why and why something's a good idea. 
Maria, I really appreciate you being on and, and answering some of my questions. I have I have five more that I wanna that I wanna finish with that I'm calling the uh, the fast five. And uh, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. First one. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? Best advice. Uh, my father, growing up, he always said where I grew up in Utica, GE was moving out, and you know the companies were moving out. My father always told me. Um, get out, go, get out of Utica, go find something to do. It's a big world out there. Go. So that's probably the best advice I ever got was, was from my father when he, he used to tell me and my brothers, get out. There's nothing here for you. Well, what well, I think, <laughs> and I, I did think, at 17 years old, I was gone. Yeah, I think the United States owes your dad a thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's the, well, on the flip side, what's the worst advice you've ever gotten? Uh, the worst advice that I didn't listen to, um, the worst advice was don't take the job at the SBA as the CIO. Oh, interesting. And I didn't listen to it. <laughs> interesting. All right. The SBA was a hot mess. Everybody knew it was a hot mess. Well, well that, that would have changed some history too. So um, <laughs> glad you didn't follow that one. Um, who, who is someone in history that you would love to have a conversation with? That's a hard question. There are so many people. Um, I've I've done a lot of reading on women and others in history, and uh, off the top of my head, because I didn't prepare for this, maybe Eleanor Roosevelt, because she was really a change agent and she did a lot. Wow, that's a really good one. Yeah, she was a change agent. Um, what right now is inspiring you? Um, I am working now, uh, since I retired, uh, in the local community, getting involved with Tech Frederick um, and a lot of the tech that's going on in the community. Working in D.C. for more than a couple of decades and working elsewhere, I've not had the time to focus on the local community or be involved at all. So uh, what's inspiring me now is working with the local community, and I got to... uh, be at the kickoff last week for a STEM center at one of the elementary schools. Oh, that's very cool. So my, my wife is a STEM educator in K through five. So she will love to hear that. That's very cool. And last question, where do you go to self-educate? Where do you go to get smarter? Um, you know, I still read a lot, but I also ask a lot of questions. I recently went on a trip and you probably saw my post up on LinkedIn um, you know, learning about other people, right, and how they got to where they are and their jobs that they do. And I think the it, more so than, you know, following what's going on in the government and reading and keeping up with all of that, I think it's also talking to people and understanding what inspires them and how they got to where they are. I love that answer. I think what one of the things that I love doing is obviously getting into books is, is good, but I love learning through conversations and hearing people's stories. So um, that's really cool to hear. That's, that's something that's really important to you too. Maria, thank you so much for taking the time to being on the show today. This was a great conversation. Um, I know I, I learned a lot, as I always do from a lot of my guests. So I appreciate you taking the time to be on here. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a lot of fun. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or wherever you access your podcasts. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now. <laughs>